The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box with Karen Cho, Steve Sedgwick and myself, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines this hour. U.S. stocks rally, retailers leading the way. Department store Macy's soars almost 20% after lifting guidance as Americans apparently hit the shops. The consumer is healthy. And, and that's across all of the value uh, when, you're, when you're looking at a customer basically who makes 75000 and below, 75 to 150 as well as 150 and above. All of them, the customer count is up. Chinese industrial profits fall at their fastest pace in two years as Beijing's zero-COVID strategy throws manufacturing and supply chains into turmoil. Shares in Alibaba and Baidu surging in Hong Kong after the Chinese tech giants beat earnings expectations despite lockdowns and regulatory headwinds. Broadcom announces a $61 billion takeover of cloud computing company VMware in one of the biggest tech takeovers of all time, pushing shares in both companies higher. BP says it will review its investments in the North Sea as the UK government lays out plans for a windfall tax on oil and gas operators in a bid to ease the cost of living crisis. All right, a warm welcome to Squawkbox Friday edition, post Davos as well. And you're very lucky all three of us are still standing, really. Um, but uh, the US markets just continued that fine vein of form that they showed all week. And you can see over my right shoulder, or if you're brushing your teeth or something, you're not looking at the screen, I'll tell you what's happened. The Nasdaq put on 2.7%. Uh, we've already said in the headlines there's a bit of a, a positive tailwind in uh, tech at this moment after what has been a complete drubbing. In fact, the Nasdaq is still down despite putting on 3.4% to the upside this week so far in four sessions. The Nasdaq is still down 27.6% from its record high, okay? So significantly in bear market territory. Uh, Jeff and I mildly crossed swords in the politest way possible at some stage recently about the obsession with 20% as opposed to 19.9 or 20.1, i.e. was the S&P going into bear market territory? Well, it did briefly, didn't it? But then it rallied and now it's put on 4.2% away from bear market territory. So it's down 5.8%. sector that was leading us higher yesterday, uh, you won't be that surprised to know, was consumer discretionary, of which the largest part and component uh, is actually Amazon as well. Uh, 4.8% higher that sector yesterday. Uh, And the Dow put on 1.6% to the upside. Let's have a look at the retail sector. There is an awful lot going on here, of course, and we've seen some severe violence as people look at the retail sector and try to work out about the strength of the US economy, about the strength of the US consumer, and I think importantly, uh, the strength of companies to pass on extraordinarily large pressures uh, on margins, on raw material costs, and of course, on labor. I think that's absolutely key. Look at some of these moves. These are like year-long moves happening on an almost daily basis, but I'll draw your attention to Macy's and Dollar Tree especially. Look at those enormous increases 
19.3% higher. Dollar Tree, 21.9% higher. Uh, Williams-Sonoma up 13% as well. But it's not all good as well. Uh, and look at a couple of these stocks after hours. Not so much Costco down 2.1%, but problems at Old Navy continuing for Gap Group down 13%. So a bit of a sting in the tail of what was a really positive session for a lot of retailers. Let's carry on obsessing about the strength of the US retailer. Why? Because I think it's absolutely important to look at that in terms of the prism of employment, in terms of the prism of consumer credit, consumer confidence, and we know that services, of which the consumer and retail is such a large part, is around about 65-70% of the US economy as well. In the meantime, the Treasuries, well, they're behaving beautifully for those uh, who are seeing it as a bit of a safe haven. 2.75, so the heady days of a north of 3% across the curve uh, have just eased off a little. But I'll tell you something that hasn't eased off a little bit, and this will continue to bite the consumer and indeed at policymakers' heels who are trying to work out the pace of hikes going forward. And that's WTI and Brent. Let's have a quick look at these because they are absolutely surging. You've got a 117 handle uh, on Brent crude, uh, 17.64 higher. WTI uh, trading around the flat line, but we did see some big inclines uh, in Brent and WTI yesterday, both up around 3%. Now, Jeff, you came back a day early and, and absolutely well earned because some of your panels and some of your work in Davos was pro- probably some of the finest journalistic work I've ever seen. But I had the pleasure of travelling not only with the boss, yes. but the boss's deputy yeah. uh, and also our boss, and that's Karen Cho. And do you know what they did? Go on. I was going to have a healthy meal at the Zurich airport. And do you know what they did? Do you know what they did? They forced me to have a burger and fries, and it was delicious. Good morning to you, Karen. Good morning. Just helping out the American consumer, right? After a mixed set of results. But yes, it was a pleasure to travel with Deny you as well. that it... Uh, I, I, I cannot confirm a... which type of burger and fries it was, but the onion rings were also delicious. <laughs> I think we got a, a good mix from the menu. We did our due diligence very, very well from the, the starters to the mains to the desserts. So, you know, it was well achieved all round when you look at the, the newsroom ordering. But uh, let's just push on to the numbers because we've spoken about Macy's in the past. I, I don't think it's been a smooth sailing for this department store, given you've seen huge changes in the retail sector. But the tone of the commentary yesterday was simply just not as downbeat as Target and as Walmart. And I think that's what investors responded to, the big numbers that you just saw on the boards there. Macy's CEO, Jeff Jennett, told CABC that despite the uncertainties in supply chains, he is confident in American shoppers. Let's t- take a listen. The consumer is healthy. And, and that's across all of the value um, when, you're, when you're looking at a customer basically who makes 75000 and below, 75 to 150 as well as 150 and above. All of them, the customer count is up, the customer spend is up. Uh, and so we expect that is what we're watching very carefully. We are looking at kind of the same sort of supply chain delays that we had in 2021. We have moved up ship dates. We're not going to miss back to school. We're not going to miss holiday. You know, we're building that in. And, uh, and, you know, it's still uncertain on the supply chain side. Meanwhile, also speaking to CNBC, Heyman Capital Management founder and CIO Carl Bass issued a warning, though, on the U.S. economy. We're in a scenario where we have a stagflationary environment. I think the economy is going to cool off and we will have a I think we'll have a, a recession by the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Uh, and we'll still have rising food prices and rising energy prices. And unfortunately, the Fed's monetary policy just can't change that. 
Well, let's get to uh, Eric Norland then, Executive Director and Senior Economist at the CME Group. Eric, good morning to you. Um, Some interesting notes on dividends, and we'll get to those in just a second. But I just wanted to open up this morning, really, by getting a sense from you as to whether you think we're getting anywhere close to a shift in the expected rate of interest rate hikes from here on in. Some very interesting indications that maybe the data both on the retail side and on the housing side, is beginning to slow and could present some concerns to the Fed. Yeah, I think for the Fed's perspective, it's pretty complicated. Um, The most recent retail sales figures in the U.S. show that retail sales have been growing at a rate of about 6.5% year-on-year, ex-autos and ex-gasoline. But when you inflation adjust that, the growth is almost zero something like positive 0.3%. And so the problem is that retail sales and sort of dollar terms are continuing to grow very, very strongly. uh, But in volume terms, they're not really growing because the growth is coming all from prices. Um, So that puts the Fed in this this sort of dilemma that Kyle Bass sort of hinted at, uh, where you know, things are, are growing in, in inflation terms that gives them some impetus potentially to raise rates quite a bit further. On the other hand, uh, actual economic activity doesn't seem to really be growing all that much. We have a, a central bank that's incredibly sensitive here in the UK to house price movements and what's happening really with demand and supply in the housing market. In the United States, I, I've had the sense that it's all been about the labor market and the job story. Is the Fed going to give the weakening housing starts data much notice? Yeah, I don't I don't think it is. No, I think that the housing sector is only about four and a half percent of GDP. Um, and the housing starts are actually still pretty strong compared to what they have been on average over the last decade. Um, so we have seen a particularly large dip in new home sales. Um, uh, but I don't, don't think that the Fed necessarily going to react so much to that. I think that they're faced more with this tremendous gap between a number of employees that employers are looking to hire. They're looking for maybe 11 and a half million new hires and the available labor pool is only about 2 million people. I think that that's the much bigger concern right now than what's happening in the housing market. So, Eric, we have a continued burst of inflation, which uh, we all found out now was not transitory as well. Brent crude currently trading 117.66. Um, Gasoline in the United States, dramatically higher than we've ever seen it before in history as well. Um, the inflationary problem is not going away, is it? Uh, well, it doesn't seem like it's going to go away in the very short term. I think what's really interesting here, though, is that when you look at tips versus nominal or standard U.S. treasuries, um, the inflation-protected bond market uh, basically thinks that the U.S. inflation rate this year will most likely come in at around 5.5%. Uh, but that market is pricing inflation next year and the year after around 2.5% and longer-term inflation closer to 2%. Um, so I think that the Fed is really mostly concerned with long-term inflation expectations and not short-term movements in energy prices or food prices. So, so, so given what we've seen and what you quite rightly said about that jolts data, which I find as extraordinary as you do, Eric, as well, um, the Fed, even if it were to go ahead with its 250 basis point hikes and, and then just have a little rethink after that as well, 
is dangerously behind the curve on where real inflation is in the real world for real people and indeed the potential for the second round effects to come through of course and we all studied the Phillips curve many many years ago uh, and see wage increases proliferating. Right. I mean, that, that is certainly a possibility. I think that the Federal Reserve would like to see a sort of narrowing of that gap uh, between the number of new hires and employers would like to make, in theory, in the available pool of labor. Um, so I think that the Fed is very much looking to slow down the pace of hiring uh, from its current frenetic pace down to a, a slower pace that's more in line with the available labor pool. Eric, I was just looking at some of your research around dividends and what's been paid out in recent years, and you're pointing out that the Nasdaq pace of increase around dividends has been much uh, higher than what we've seen on the S&P 500. Can you just break that down for us and also what you expect from here? Right. So the Nasdaq uh, dividends over the past, say, 15 years or so have grown by 1,300%. Uh, which is much higher than what you see with the S&P or the Russell, where they've grown more like 150 or 200 percent over the past 15 years. Uh, So part of this is that the NASDAQ is an index that is dominated by large tech companies. Um, Up until, say, about the year 2006 or so, uh, those tech companies almost never paid out dividends. They were mainly reinvesting earnings. Um, and then things began to change over the last decade. So now many of these tech companies have become much more established. They have much, they have incredibly large cash flows and profits, and they are sharing more of that with their shareholders in terms of dividends. Um, what I think is interesting is that our new NASDAQ uh, annual dividend index futures suggest a much slower pace of dividend growth for the NASDAQ going forward. Those futures price maybe only about a 20% growth over the next five years, uh, which is a, you know not a, not a bad pace, but very slow compared to the 1,300% over the last 15 years. Just looking at one of the big stocks, so one of the big tech names, Apple, for instance, uh, a stock that everybody's been looking at the cash payout for years, and you can see the ratio uh, in excess of 20%, some years 15% in others. But the news out in the last 24 hours or so that this company will also increase its minimum pay for workers, those retail workers. So as we talk about elevated costs and a company here that is a, a slightly more mature technology name, what is the um, push to try and keep the dividend yield and ratio intact look like these days for a company like Apple that wants to, to prove that it is a reliable, bankable company to invest in? Right. You know, I can't really speak to any individual company, but I think that across a huge, huge range of companies, we are seeing tremendous increases in cost pressures. Uh, the producer price index, which is you know, an indication of uh, an indicator of, of certain kinds of input costs, is up 16% almost year on year. Wage costs on average are growing 6% year on year. Um, and that's, you know, that's going to keep a lid on earnings likely going forward. Um, and if you see downward pressure on earnings, it may really limit the amount of, of dividend growth that we could see over the next decade. We're going to say goodbye, Eric, but thanks so much for joining us this morning. A pleasure having your company. Eric Norland, Executive Director and Senior Economist at CME Group. Uh, Coming up on the programme, Alibaba shrugs off COVID lockdowns and regulatory concerns to beat earnings estimates. We're going to bring you details in just a few minutes. And in Davos this week, there was widespread concern over the state of the global economy, with many predicting we are heading for a downturn. 
But rather than scare people by mentioning the R word, some of our guests took a different approach. When I worked in the White House under President Carter, uh, the inflation advisor, Fred Kahn, uh, said that he thought we were heading into a recession right before the 1980 presidential election. And President Carter called him into the Oval Office and said, look, I'm running for re-election. Don't use the R word. It scares people. Subsequently, Fred Kahn said he thought we were heading into a banana. And he used the word banana because he realized reporters wouldn't put a headline that said, Fred Kahn thinks we're heading into a banana. So I'm very reluctant to use the word recession, but let me just say that we're, we're not in a banana yet, but I think the signs are not as favorable as I would like. Uh, are there too many NIMBYs left in Europe? Definitely, I would say that these days it's not even NIMBY, it's banana. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone, oh, and that's not going to work. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. Yeah, and that's, that's not going to work. It's interesting, that's the second time bananas have come up in an economic context. Only one problem for me, David, I would never think of banana the same way as I did before. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the current administration will not hinder China's economic growth, but insists it must stick to international rules in a speech on Thursday on U.S. strategy. Blinken brushed away prospects of a Cold War-type bilateral relationship, but did say Washington sees China as the biggest threat to the world order, despite Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Secretary Blinken also said the U.S. cannot rely on Beijing to change. This is a charged moment for the world. And at times like these, diplomacy is vital. It's how we make clear our profound concerns, better understand each other's perspective, and have no doubt about each other's intentions. We stand ready to increase our direct communication with Beijing across a full range of issues. And we hope that that can happen. But. We cannot rely on Beijing to change its trajectory. So we will shape the strategic environment around Beijing to advance our vision for an open, inclusive international system. Secretary Blinken, well, Chinese industrial profits fell by 8.5% in April, the fastest rate of decline in two years. That's as Beijing's zero-COVID stance disrupts manufacturing, throwing supply chains into chaos and driving up commodity prices. It also... Uh, prompted a very, very, very interesting video conference of the Communist Party. And I don't know whether you saw no, much about the story here, but I don't remember ever seeing anything of this scale before. But um, there is a write-up, of course, on cnbc.com, so go and have a look at that. I'll go and give us a tease. But with the important party conference coming up yep. later this year, 
Um, and obviously the question is, does Xi Jinping get a third term? And then ultimately, does he remain president for life here? And you do wonder, given that this big video conference was held with um, hundreds and thousands of uh, Communist Party delegates from across the country, all on the conference at the same time, discussing the outlook for the economy ultimately and what measures need to be implemented. It does raise some interesting questions about how the party itself now is beginning to think about the economic challenge. But so a very, very unprecedented we, event. So just, I, I know we've got to move on, but yeah. you're not saying that there isn't a, that he's not going to get his third term and that he's not going to be president for life. You're just saying that it was a, a huge stage-managed event. Yes. Right. Uh, and w what was interesting, um, you know, obviously uh, Li Keqiang uh, did a lot of the the important spade work in that event uh, and of course you know for all of the the party whisperers out there in the western world who look at the communist party and try and sift through any nuance in what's happening that was considered slightly important yeah okay brilliant well, look, look we saw the uh, chinese markets just there so despite all of those concerns about the industrial um, production plunging as well, uh, Asian markets, well, the Chinese markets were in positive territory. And that's pretty much down to the fact that I believe that people just think if we have a, a negative uh, print on industrial policy or in industrial profits, whatever it may well be, then there's going to be more policy support. There's going to be more PBOC stimulus as well. And that is why you get this catalyst to the upside. That seems to be the conventional logic. Should we have a look at some broader Asian markets as well? Let's do that. Thank you, Rod. OK, so the Nikkei is six tenths of one percent higher. Uh, and the Hang Seng, look at that. We mentioned the technology stocks. I'll do that again now. 2.7% higher because shares of Alibaba and Baidu are up sharply in the aforementioned Hong Kong after earnings beat analysts' expectations. But both had warnings for the months ahead, with Alibaba refusing to provide guidance. Baidu warning of a tougher quarter. Karen. Chipmaker Broadcom will buy cloud computing company VMware in a stock and cash deal worth $61 billion. The offer represents a nearly 49% premium on VMware's uh, stock price before reporting of the deal was made public. The acquisition marks the latest step in Broadcom's diversification into enterprise software and is the second biggest deal of the year behind Microsoft's takeover of Activision Blizzard. Well, while we're comparing deals, I think the big one to probably compare to is Twitter and Elon Musk's bid to try and take over the company because uh, the Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal was declared before a lot of this market volatility set in. So if we really are looking for a test of sentiment and optimism for large transactions, perhaps it is that Twitter move that has been the one that might have provoked a little bit more interest. But we heard it in Davos and we were speaking to Palantir, to Dassault Systems, and the message was that if you're a large company and you're still somewhat resilient in the tech space, then now you are getting presented with a whole series of opportunities. So I thought that was fascinating, but also... And just worth noting that this is a big step into enterprise software, still growing. About half of Broadcom's revenue would come from that area. Jeff Steve. Yeah, Karen, I, I have an angle on this, and it's about wheat and chaff. And I don't want to get all biblical on everyone, but the fact of the matter is, if you are a stunningly competent company that is doing well, that is going to see out 
uh, this burst of realism that we're seeing in a lot of horrendously unprofitable and who will never be profitable tech companies, then you can still get financing available. $32 billion of bank financing is going forward uh, into this deal, uh, which, as I say, uh, the, the chip maker thinks will transform its, com uh, its company uh, with this cloud software business. What, I, what I'm saying is here, two things. One, the big companies still feel confident to make deals. In fact, more confident to make deals because we've had the market route. Two, the financing is available for these companies as well. And three, let's not confuse this. Uh, let's not conflagrate it with something else going on out there because there's an awful lot of companies that wouldn't have got a jot near that kind of level of financing as well. So I think that's great that the banks have found a company they feel that they can sponsor in this deal as well. But let's not confuse this with a broad brush change of approach, a drawing in the line of the sand between certain companies that just really the business model has been challenged and seen to be wanting and companies like Broadcom being very different. Very interesting that you mentioned sand because I think like water poured on sand, ultimately a lot of these deals are just going to start to seep away. And, the, and of course the reason for that is um, twofold. One is that market volatility has been high and actually we've been trending sideways and lower for the last seven weeks or so. Uh, and the second one is that just interest rates are going to make um, it more difficult to do acquisitions with cash. And as you point out, if you're a good company and, you've, and, you, and you are considered uh, blue chip in all regards, it's probably not going to be a problem for you, but increasingly it will be a problem at the margins where businesses are going to struggle to actually persuade the bankers that they are a good punt. I never ever believe this nonsense that we, oh, we couldn't IPO because of the market volatility. It's absolute gibberish, ladies and gentlemen. If you are a good company coming to market with a value proposition and you're not having your, your, your sponsors and your backers trying to push your valuation to extreme levels, you will always get an IPO away in all but the most extraordinary circumstances. That is a fact. I've seen it in history time and time again. But if you're trying to chance your arm with a, a juicy valuation on a business model that is a little bit dodgy as well, then of course the market volatility uh, will find you wanting as well. So I think this fits into the former there, a good company that has a lot of aspirations to build itself up with a lower valuation of the acquisition and the financing available. It just shows you, despite all of that 27% we got lower on the NASDAQ, if you're, if you're the right kind of company, you can still get your money. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.